We're continuing on with Peter's prayer in Acts chapter 3. And beginning at verse 17, he says, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, of which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham and to your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. In chapter 8 of our confession, the chapter that's titled Christ the Mediator, in paragraph 1 we read, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king head and savior of his church. Those three titles, prophet, priest, and king. As we look at these verses that we have read, we'll find that indeed these three titles are are there for us to see. Either by direct statement or by inference. Clearly, In verse 22, we have the reference to Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verses 15 through 19. Be good to go back there and read those exact words. Deuteronomy 18. In verse 15, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. In accordance to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly 
saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So the Lord will raise up for you a prophet. Now remember at one time, Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say that I, the son of man, am? And one of the questions, one of the answers that came back quickly was, some say thou art the prophet. The prophet, the one that had been prophesied by Moses. So this this, uh, prophecy from Moses was something that they had been looking for all along and was fresh in their memories. And it reminds us when we hear those words, him you shall hear. When we come to the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transfigured in the presence of Peter and John and some of the others with Moses and Elijah in Matthew 17 and verses 1 through 5. We note that Moses is there and we see in verse 5 we hear God the Father speak. And what does he say? He says what Moses has said. He says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased and then as with Moses, hear him. Hear him. Now the prophet's task, if you will, what he was called to do, what what made a prophet a prophet was not just that he would come and announce the things that were to come, whether they be doom or good. The prophet also spoke God's word for the present what God was saying about the things that were in the now. And definitely Jesus did this. And when we come to a place like Hebrews uh, chapter 1, and verse 1, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty of on high. What was the last word that God would give? It would come through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has in these last days. Now, of course, when we understand last days, we're not speaking of of a, a year or two before the Lord returns. The last days began with the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, and they have been, the time has been whittling down slowly and surely, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, till his return. So with his ascension began the clock winding down to his 
return. These are the last days. There are not going to be any more days on this earth. That's it. When Jesus returns, time is over as we know it, and the world is to be changed. So God's last word to man is through his son. That's it. You're not to look for anything else. No more words are to come. God has said his last words to man. And yet he still speaks. But it is through his word. That is the last of the audible content. Now made visual as well. And when it comes to priest, in verse 19 of Acts chapter 3, Peter highlights the blessed fact that their sins may be blotted out. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Sins blotted out. Because man is sinful, he cannot come on his own before God. Man feels like he can do it whenever he wants to. Man comes and says, well, if I want to pray to God, I'll pray to God. If I'm in trouble, I'll acknowledge him, various other things like that. But you really cannot come to Christ without a mediator. You can't come to God without a mediator. You can't come in your own righteousness. It has to be through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the priesthood in the Old Testament was all about. The people did not go into the Holy of Holies. The priests had to do that for them. The people didn't make their own sacrifices. The priests did that for them. And so therefore that picture was given that for us to come to God, someone has to be in between. He needs, man needs an intermediary, a go-between. So the priest was that person. He spoke to the people on behalf of God. He spoke to God on behalf of the people. He arranged the sacrifices for the forgiving of sins. So Jesus is our intermediary and gives himself as the ultimate sacrifices, sacrifice for the blotting out of our sins. So in verse 26, the same thing is in mind. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, turning away every one of you from your iniquities. In verse 19, there's the call to repent. Turn, turn from your sins. Repent means to turn, to turn from your sins. You're going in one direction, believing one thing and thinking one way. And then in repentance, you see how God sees things and you turn into the direction that he wants us to go. We're commanded to do this, but the power and the desire to do these things are not in us. It is the Lord working in us that causes us to have the desire to turn from our sins, to see their deadly consequences and flee to Christ. Now, some time ago, uh, there was a, a bit of a debate or an argument about the doctrine of election. And one man said, well, I cannot believe the doctrine of election for if only the elect will be saved, then what of the person who is not elect yet 
They dearly want to trust Christ and be saved. So the man put forth was this, someone who somehow is not, he's not elect, but yet he still wants to be saved. So the response was this, the person you describe does not exist and has never existed. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But then you must see the way that they are to come to him. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Well then, if we know verse 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Well, how do they come? Well, verse 44 of John 6, no man, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the final answer was the person you speak of does not exist for if they seriously come to Christ. They are the elect, and God is drawing them. And the only way we know who the elect are is that they come to Christ, and they remain with Him. And so Christ stands as prophet, and He stands as priest, and then He stands as king. Now, you might say, where in this sermon do we find any reference to a king? Well, in verse 21 of Acts 3, as I said, it, it's infer, in, there's an inference to this here. It, it doesn't come and beat you over the head. It speaks of Christ who heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, whom heaven must receive. Why? Because it's his rightful place at the throne. Psalm 110 and verse 1, so often quoted in the New Testament, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools, your footstool. And so we have that picture for us in Matthew 26 and verse 64. Jesus said to him, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And of course, in Acts chapter 2, in verse uh, 33 and, and 34, the same kind of idea, quoting Psalm 110 and verse 1. And so he sits at the throne, he is the king, and he has a kingdom. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26 and verse 64. Well, here in verse 21, we have the same idea. Heaven must receive him. For how long? How long? Till the time of the restoration of all things. 
And at that point, then comes the consummation of the king's kingdom. Now, I'll pause here for just a moment because it's worth spending just a, another few moments to understand something here. Notice what Peter is saying. Christ remains at the right hand of the Father until what? Until the time of his return. What happens at his return? The restoration of all things. So Peter, like Paul, sees the return of Christ as the end. Not the beginning of a thousand years, but the end. When he comes, that is when it's over. So when Peter writes his own epistle in 2 Peter, in his own letter, notice when we come to 2 Peter chapter 3, what he says. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That is, nobody will expect it, or most people. In which, what happens? The heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So notice, when Jesus returns, what happens? Boom. The end, the restoration of all things begins with the destruction of all things, if you will. But there's no gap in between, no time in between. When the Lord returns, that is the end. This king will consummate his kingdom. So in chapter 3 and verse 20, as Peter is speaking, in that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. This Christ, he says, that was preached to you before <clears throat> will return from heaven at the time appointed and will bring about the restoration of all things. Before ascending, Jesus was asked by those standing by him, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? There was this limited scope of thinking. For they were seeking a political restoration. They were seeking a restoration of Israel. It's political independence and former status of power among the nations. Now I often wonder about this mindset because it still is quite prevalent. Uh, you mean to say that you're really looking for things to return as Israel was under King David? Well, those were the glory years, you know. So you really want things to return to that time. Is that what you're looking for? For first, it was not a time of prolonged peace. It may have been their greatest time in regard to territory, but even then they had to work to keep that territory. But there was very little peace. There are always enemies inside and out. It was not a complete reign of righteousness either. David was no Jesus. And it involved mainly one group of people. So I can kind of see at that point, as Jesus is getting going, you got a bunch of people, red hats with M-A-J-G-A, M-A-J-G-A on them. 
the Magica movement. Make all Jews great again. But Jesus answered, he showed the wrongheadedness of their thinking. For when Jesus answered them, he said, in chapter 1 of Acts in verse 8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, be witnesses to me, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and then what? To the end of the earth. The end of the earth. You're not going to receive power from the Holy Spirit to restore a lost kingdom, but to work in my kingdom, one which is throughout the world. Everywhere the witness of Jesus is received and rejoiced in is part of Christ's kingdom on earth. No. It's not a very wise thing to defy a king. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, as we read, him you shall hear. But what about verse 19? Well, it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Those who refuse to hear will be and have to... They'll be held responsible for their sin, for their disobedience. In Acts 13 and in verse 38, uh, as, as Paul is speaking, Now therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I will work in your days a work which you will by no means receive, though one were to declare it to you. Peter and others make it clear to all who are are listening as Jesus did that all the Old Testament prophets the work of the Old Testament the whole of it pointed to him it was in the light of that that we read words like we do in Hebrews 2 and verse 3 how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which first began to be spoken by the Lord and confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So Jesus, our prophet, our priest, our king. Okay, very well, you look at that and say, well, that's nice. It's, it's nice to see that in the scriptures and, and it's nice to know that we have those things. But often people will say, well, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me in my life? Are these just nice little titles that Jesus has? No, because personally, he is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. He is our prophet giving to us the words of God, the words of life. 
He's our priest, dying in our place, giving the sacrifice, making us right with God, being the intermediary for us, making it so our prayers are heard, making it so we are accepted by God. I refer to the every now and then, but the, the idea, if you remember what Zacharias's job was to do, the, the father of John the Baptist, his job was to keep the incense burning. Why? Because they had to have the incense burning at the hour of prayer. Why? Because it was symbolic of the idea that when they prayed, they needed something to make their prayers acceptable. Is, as Paul would say, a sweet aroma, a sweet smell. It's kind of like if someone comes to you after they've just been eating garlic and onions and they're breathing heavy on you as you speak, you don't really want to hear them. But if they've had a certs, two certs with powerful retsin, then they speak and you might... You might want to listen. But without Christ, our words are foul and and full of stench because they come from unrighteous lips. But through Christ, they become a sweet smell and acceptable unto God. That was all to show us. And, And so it teaches us that necessary point of that we needed somebody in between someone to stand in our place before God. And then he's our king. His kingdom shall never end. We are in a kingdom that cannot be demolished, destroyed, diminished. Everything we look around, it's interesting to look over in the UK or to England and see the remnants of Hadrian's Wall and know that it has been there for 1,900 years. That's an amazing thing. But you know that the wall has been diminished. And who was it that built it? It was the Romans. And where's the Roman Empire? It's gone. And we look at all throughout the world, the different kingdoms that have come and gone, and, and there may be someday that people will look and see there. Well, that's where America used to be. But the kingdom of Christ will never end. The kingdom of Christ will never be led by the unrighteous. It will always be a righteous kingdom, full of holiness, and there will be no sin to be found in the final stage of his kingdom. So these things are important to us, where we are, how we live, each and every day. No matter what, it is, doesn't it give you confidence to know that somewhere along the line you can hear the words back there that Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for the saints? Does it, can it not thrill your heart just a little bit to know that Jesus is praying for you? I find that amazing. It's so unworthy of such a thing to happen, but... To think somewhere along the line, Jesus, the Holy Spirit's making intercession for us. Uh, all these, it's and it's all because we're part of 
his kingdom. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to have a head of a kingdom that prays for his people instead of finding a way to tax them? And one last thing, when we come to verse 17, there's a change in Peter's tone. After accusing them of being guilty of the blood of Christ, he says in verse 17, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. But then in verse 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. So you're not ignorant anymore. <laughs> I've just spent this time, he said, and I've showed you and I've explained this to you. In fact, this is the second occasion, basically, I've said this to you. So you don't have ignorance to fall behind anymore. And Paul would speak of the ignorance that because if they knew who Christ really was, they wouldn't have done what they did to him. So he says, you are ignorant of the truth, but nonetheless, the truth is the truth, whether you acknowledge it or embrace it. And now, and nonetheless, you are still responsible. Ignorance doesn't equal righteousness. On the day of judgment, you can't stand before God and say, I just didn't know. Oh, well, <laughs> okay, come on in. It's not going to work that way. Salvation does not come by ignorance. Condemnation comes through ignorance. And what does he command? Well, in verse 19, he says, Repent and therefore be converted. Repentance, though it is a command, is still a gift. Peter calls for it in Acts 2.38 and here. But if we turn to Acts 11 and verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, note the wording here, that God has also granted Granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Granted to them. Granted. One, one other quick place. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. Talking about correcting those who are in opposition in humility. Correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God will do what? Grant them repentance. Grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. People think, well, repentance is just being sorry for your sins. It's sorrow. That's only a small component of it. And any human being can work up sorrow. Any human being can work up sadness. But true repentance is granted to us it is a gift from God. And what follows? Well, repent that there will be times of refreshing. Times of refreshing. 
spiritual refreshment, joy, and peace through the great and precious promises of the gospel. How refreshing it has to be to know to know God. To have God have revealed himself to you. To know that you are now his child. That God has made a covenant with you through Jesus Christ. And in that, not only are you his, but in that covenant, he is yours. Every single day, God is mine through Jesus Christ. That's refreshing. Something I can't lose. Something that can't melt, rust, or be stolen. That's refreshing. Peace with God. Peace with our conscience. And peace with each other. Let's stand together for prayer.